business is one of like right next to, I would say, real estate in terms of best ways in America to rapidly grow wealth. There are some like the tax law is designed to benefit business owners and landlords. So if you know what you're doing or know who to ask or just to ask the questions, there's a lot that you can do there to accelerate your wealth building through business as opposed to the traditional nine to five. Investing in yourself when you have knowledge, when you have experience, when you've built a network, nobody can take those away from you and you have the most control over it because you get to decide what you do with that. Heyo, welcome to the Asian Detox Podcast, the podcast where we boldly reclaim Asian American prosperity. We have relatable conversations about how being Asian American shows up in our day-to-day lives, how money is deeply embedded in our culture, and how you can choose to define your own version of success in a world that tries to tell us how to be. I'm your host, TJ Wei, your hashtag very Asian, non-binary, gluten and dairy-free money habits coach, and I want you to know that you don't have to live in the boxes other people put you in. You can design your abundant life in a way that honors your heritage while enjoying a life of ease and alignment. And you can do it while making money and building generational wealth. Today we have, my guest is Yin Guan. Her dream is to open an Asian style tea house one day that brings people together for shared moments over tea, which I love because I definitely grew up drinking tea. Uh, And she is currently working on turning her dream into a reality. So thank you for coming, Yin Guan. Thanks, TJ, for having me. Would you share with us your um, social media handles where people can find you? Sure. Um, Instagram would be the best place. That's where I'm most active, at Broken Cup Tea House. Uh, there's also a website, www.brokencupteahouse.com. Uh, and that's about it. Awesome. So I saw your uh, your bio and I was so excited to have you on because of the tea house. And um, I'd like to start with an icebreaker, but then there's a lot more I'd love to dig into. Uh, so... Tell us, when you grew up in your family, did you guys talk about money? Like what was, was that an explicit thing or is that something where you guys didn't talk about money at all? Sure. It's sort of yes and no, where we didn't have a lot of it. Um, So a lot of the conversations were about not being able to buy this or that. But growing up uh, for a while after having me and my sister, my mom wasn't working. My dad was the uh, the breadwinner, um, and he was a postdoc researcher at the time. So that was the kind of salary we were living on. And I think those sort of um, habits of self-denial, um, not being able to afford things, you know, looking for what's on sale, like even even basic groceries, those habits have just been instilled in me, you know, over my whole life um, to the point where I, I'm still doing those things all the time. And of course, you know, my parents wanted me to become more wealthy than them um, when I grew up. And so because they both worked in science research, um, but neither neither of them were professors. They their dream for me was to become like a professor and have my own research lab um, or a doctor was was the other thing. You were given two choices. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I, I was always a little bit better at like writing and English than math and science though in school. So, you know, I, I think they briefly entertained lawyer, but none of us really know anything about the legal system. So that was like a whole just unknown black box kind of a thing. So sticking to what they knew, it was like science research professor. Um, 
for medical doctor. Um, so I was I was on that path for a little while in college before sort of deviating more and more and more to the point where I'm now, which is trying to start my own tea house. Okay, awesome. So when you say you were on that path, like what was your major? Uh, it was biology, same as my parents. Okay, awesome. Yeah, and then my minor was in educational studies. So with that, I went into teaching for a few years uh, after college at the high school level. I was teaching high school math and science, and that was super fun. I got to live in Taiwan for a year and in Jordan for two years. Oh, wow. Um, during which time I, I became really interested in spirituality. So I actually... Um, quit my second teaching job to uh, to travel and, and backpack for a while. And what did your parents think of that? <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I must not have told them until I was actually doing it. <laughs> yep, yep, that sounds about right. <laughs> but yeah, so you know, I was like, I, I know what they're gonna say, so it's probably better for everyone if they don't have to know until they have to know. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I think over the years they've just kind of gotten used to, because they really have no other choice, um, gotten used to me just, you know, doing my own thing. Um, right. So I did that. And then I, I decided I really wanted to study Buddhism. So I went back to school to study that for a couple of years and I got more into tea at that same time. And there's sort of, um, I can, I can go into this a little bit more if you want, but there are a lot of ties between Buddhism and um, tea culture, yeah. especially with their origins in China um, and how they both flourished and have co-developed over time in the West actually today as well. Um, so that was really interesting to me. And I, yeah, now I'm at the part where I'm really into tea and doing that. Awesome. So tell us a little bit more about like what an Asian style tea house means to you. Yeah, um, I'm really glad for this question because being here in Boston, there is a lot of tea history here, uh, you know, Boston Tea Party and all of that. And there are a couple sort of high end tea places that are um, all English style. So, you know, there's the whole history of England and India, uh, Sri mm -hmm. Lanka as well, and the colonialism of tea um, and how that's the, the dominant, um, the mainstream narrative um, about tea in the U.S., I think, uh, especially here in Boston. Uh, I, you know, I've enjoyed uh, English tea myself, definitely, before, um, but I think I want to, you know, this tea house dream is something I want to do that feels authentic to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what I can, you know, contribute to the culture here in the community is something that um, feels, uh, makes me feel at home. You know, something that I've grown to love um, when I was working in Taiwan, actually, um, I would frequent frequent tea houses there when I traveled to Hong Kong or mainland China. You know, those kinds of tea houses were where I felt like um, time would slow down and the tea would be very, very simple um, but elegant at the same time. And you didn't need all these sort of accoutrements of the sugar and milk and scones and, you know, little like cucumber sandwiches. Yes. Um, where there's so... there's so much thought and quality that goes into the craftsmanship of the tea itself that could really be highlighted. That's awesome. So 
for people who aren't familiar, what does like, what's the aesthetic of an Asian tea house? Especially like, I don't know that I've recognized in like Taiwan or China what that was. Cause I like, what comes to my head is like the Japanese style tea ceremony stuff. Mm, mm-hmm. I think there's an interesting key word at the center of all of this, which is traditional and which is a very, um, it's, it's a powerful word and it can sort of convey meaning in a way without actually having a concrete basis sometimes. So for example, I could tell you that my, my tea house, my wish for it is to be more traditional in style, Mm -hmm. but, um, what does that actually mean? So I've, this is something I'm still thinking through. Um, because on one hand, it's like there are these parts of Chinese culture that feel very close to me and that I love. And on the other hand, I didn't really grow up in China. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I spend most of my life here and there are American things that feel very close and authentic to me as well. So in a way, it it's a little bit of an Asian American style tea house, maybe more than truly Asian. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, sort of Asian elements that I think of would be um, the kind of furniture that's there, you know, um, teak furniture, um, calligraphy and ink paintings, the tea and the tea ware, the style of serving tea, you know, being able to put the names of the teas in Chinese on there, Mm -hmm. on the menu, um, and explaining where they're from, uh, from China or Taiwan or or Korea, actually. as well. And then those would be meshed together, hopefully, with other things that feel um, feel like part of my life here in New England as well. Um, sort of like cozy fall and winter vibes. Yes. <laughs> and maybe like a long like farmhouse style table that's like for community gatherings, um, that kind of thing. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I could really see that. Thanks. <laughs> So you're working on this full time now. Um, how recently did you start like focusing on building this tea house and what has that process been like? It's um, hard to say officially when it started. You know, I could tell you that the, I got the LLC uh, two months ago. Congrats. I quit my job. Thank you. <laughs> that definitely felt like a, a milestone. Um, I quit my job in January of this year to, to focus on this. Um, but really the dream started maybe six, five or six years ago, you know, at a point in grad school when I was, um, when I started to host tea parties, uh, tea gatherings in my house and it grew from like a couple people to like at one point on a, it was like the, the weekend of mid-autumn festival and we had like 20, 25 people, Oof. you know, coming by for tea and mooncake and stuff. Um, and I just was, was like, wow, that's, this is the feeling that I yes. want to preserve and take with me and like make the heart of what I want to keep doing. Oh, that feels so good. Yeah. Everyone just like kind of gathered around together um, in a really like cozy way, you know, like low stakes and very casual and, um, yeah, friendly, um, yeah, you probably get it. <laughs> so let me ask you, is that feeling that you just described, would you say that that's specific to your business or is that also like the brand that you're also looking as your personal brand? Uh, hmm. I don't think I've thought about like a 
business versus personal brand. Maybe they're just too much of the same thing for me or something. <laughs> I'm the same way. I'm like, this is just me. Like, there might be some illustrated versions of it, but that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so I guess both for now. Um, you know, the, 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 there's a story um, from Buddhism that I used as inspiration for the name of my tea house, Broken Cup Tea House, um, which is a true story about a Thai teacher who I think might be still alive. I'll have to double check. His name is Ajahn Chah. And um, he was with some students one day, and one of them asked him, Ajahn Chah, we're having tea, and I see you admiring your special teacup. Um, but I'm confused because you are always, you know, teaching us not to cling on to things, um, physical things and permanent things, because that only causes suffering, but you seem to love your teacup, um, very much. Um, and so Ajahn Chah said, you know, I think you're right. Um, I do like this teacup a lot. I love how it looks in the light. Um, I love how tea tastes in it, but I know that one day it will break when it falls mm -hmm. um, or, you know, eventually return to the dust. And, and when that happens, I'll say, of course. So that's the story. And the significance of it to me is that, you know, everything, everything is impermanent, but it's not necessarily a cause for lamentation or sadness um in fact you know when we when we keep that in mind when we're aware of how how short our time is with the things that we love it can help us to cherish them more mm -hmm. and so that's that's the that's the spirit you know with with the tea cherishing tea cherishing people um cherishing our time together oh that's lovely I love that. But it's yeah, it's not about you. like detachment from everything and being like emotionless. It's about recognizing mm -hmm. that everything is temporary and appreciating it when you have it. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's absolutely beautiful. So you started with like hosting these uh tea parties at your house. What do you feel is like the next step from where you are today to achieving your dream? Yeah, so I'm at the point where I've done, uh, you know, several events in the area, um, some online tea tastings with companies, um, and I'm trying to just figure out what what the business model is, sort of long term, um, and at what point I I I want to dive into finding that brick and mortar space, mm -hmm. um, you know, signing up for a lease. So I guess learning learning how to be a business owner is like where I'm at. Yeah, in a nutshell. <laughs> All right. Awesome. So you mentioned about doing like online tea tastings with companies. What does that look like? Sure. Um, so what happens is, you know, we talk about what um, someone, the company is interested in, uh, make little sample packets, ship them out to either an office or people individually who are working from home. Um, and then I'll have instructions for like teaware and setup that you need for the day of, uh, usually very simple. 
And then um, on that day, it's sort of like a guided tea tasting with a class about those teas, um, about like an hour long. Awesome. Yeah, I've done like whiskey tasting and chocolate tasting. So the tea one has never occurred to me that we could do that with tea. Yeah, totally. Um, And, you know, I, the style of tea that I personally um, tend to use is Gongfu Cha. um, But those teas, because they're so high quality, you can, you can almost do anything with them and not mess it up in some way. Oh, that's nice. For people who are new to tea, um, especially for like virtual tastings where, you know, you sort of can't, um, people don't all have the same teaware and so forth. So um, you can, you can just throw the leaves in a mug, really, you know, have like three or four mugs and pour hot water on them um, and steep them forever. They'll get stronger, but not bitter or astringent. So. Wow. I think I need some of that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, high quality leaves, man. It's 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 a whole different like world. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. the type that will like forget that I prepared food or drink and then walk away and do something else and come back and then my mm. tea is completely bitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it it changes the game when when they don't do that, you know, and um yeah, it works pretty well. <laughs> All right. Well, you mentioned like teaware, so I'm curious for you like what does that look like personally? And what are you like, what would you recommend to somebody who wanted to get into having a, like a, a not mug for tea? With teaware, the, the main thing is to, I think, try to make the most of what you have, you know, and try to make the tea that you have the best that you can with the teaware that you have. That said, if you're looking to get into um, something like Gongfu Cha, you probably want like either a small gaiwan or a small teapot to start with. So, you know, Western style teapots tend to be about 12 to 16 ounces um, in size. Um, whereas Gongfu Cha teaware is maybe three ounces for wow. like a, a personal, like single one or two people serving size. Mm-hmm. Um, and the core differences would be um, with Western style brewing, you're doing a low leaf to water ratio and longer brewing times. So less leaf, more water, um, steeping for, you know, five, 10 minutes with Gong Fu Cha. Um, no matter what teaware you use, you're using a high leaf, high leaf to water ratio, shorter steeping times. Okay. So you might be actually using the same amount of leaf or more that you use for a bigger teapot in that small guy one oh, teapot. Okay. But then only brewing for um, 5, 15, 30 seconds at a time. Wow, that's fast. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is to taste through the leaf kind of one layer at a time. You know, you're kind of starting from the outside, um, the juices that are coating the leaf post processing, and then getting more and more into the heart of the leaf. Okay, just so I understand, does that mean that like you you may be using the same tea leaves over and over again? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Sorry to explain that. Um, the idea is that with high quality tea leaves and the style of brewing, you can steep many, many times, um, and that's part of the enjoyment of it, where you're tasting you're tasting through the layers of the tea, um, and you can sort of how it is evolving, mm. you know, across those steeps. Yeah, because it'll taste different every time. That's right. That's awesome from like my brain immediately went to, then you don't have to like clean out the tea leaves every time. You're <laughs> <in the pot. laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it's, you know, like a, a one one batch of tea leaves can last you like a whole morning or afternoon or a whole day if you want. Yeah. Um, you sort of you get to decide for yourself when the tea is is through. You right, know, when you're done for as long as you like. Yeah. yeah. It depends on like how how bitter you want it, or when you're just if you're done for the day, you better clean it out though. Like. Yep. Right. Okay. That's right. Um. So is that like with the, I'm assuming the smaller teapots, like that's not the same as like when I go to a Chinese restaurant and they give me like the, like the tin teapots and like, that's a different type of tea. Right. That is still a relatively large teapot, I would say. So the teapots I'm thinking of, um, or the guy ones are, are really maybe, I guess this is not going to be transferable to audio, but it's maybe it's the size of like an apple, uh, <laughs> like yes. a medium apple. Um, that's the size I'm thinking of. So, um, just really small portions because Gongfu Cha is more about tasting the tea, mm-hmm. pin, pin cha, pin ming, um, tasting the tea rather than drinking huge amounts of it. Um, so you're tasting through the tea, you know, one layer at a time. So then traditionally, is this something where you would only sit down and have the tea? You wouldn't eat anything else with it? It wouldn't be something you had with a meal? It can be casual or it can be formal. So like for a formal um, like tea arts presentation, um, it would be, you know, all about the tea. Um, but I think when you do it with friends, you can have snacks and stuff or or even with food. Okay. There are no, no hard and fast rules. <laughs> So then for your tea house, like what level of like snacks versus a whole meal are you thinking for your tea house? Oh, um, great question. That is something I'm actively thinking through right now. Um, sort of as part of the whole business model thing Mm -hmm. where I would like to have some food, um, but not a whole lot. So it'll be somewhere in between like a good variety of snacks to light meals. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Anything else about your tea house you want to share? As a general comment, sort of, um, I, I'm personally, I've been very inspired by tea houses that, you know, I visited um, across Taiwan or mainland China. And I really believe, um, you know, there's a saying that a rising tide lifts all boats. And I really think the same is true with tea. Sometimes it can feel like there's a little bit of a competitive or, or even at times cutthroat culture mm-hmm. in terms of like competition between tea businesses. And I would really like to fight that um, and um, think of ways where, where, you know, we can work together or it doesn't even have to be that active, you know, just, just understanding that the more tea culture there is, the more people are drinking good tea and know about it the more tea people will drink, you know, the more business there is for everyone. Yeah. You're, you're looking to embody that like collaborative feeling of it. And um, there's a reason this is the Asian detox podcast is because my personal view of like the Asian community, like this, this faceless blob was that the Asian community can be extremely toxic and we're very competitive and everybody, this is a whole thing. And I realized it's actually because my parents are also from Taiwan and they, they grew up, there were only three universities when they grew up in Taiwan. So everything was about competition to get into college. And they translated that into the second generation that didn't have these constraints. So my impression was always that like spending time with other Asians would 
put me back in my high school mm-hmm. environment where we were all like competing against each other. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, I sense that there might be some similar culture there that you, you don't want to encourage. hundred percent, hundred percent. Um, I grew up, um, in, in high school, you know, my closest, uh, group of friends was, it was eerie how similar we all were in terms of our background, um, what our parents did. And, you know, we, we were all, I think the firstborn in our families. So we were expected to get good grades and sort of make that leap to like a good university, um, stuff like that. And, Fortunately, I think we mostly still, we mostly like helped each other out um, in terms of our classes and college applications and stuff. But there was definitely a point like at some point when we were applying to college, it was like, oh, we're, we're all applying to the same like Ivy Leagues and, and whatnot, you, you know, even local colleges. Um, it's it's so hard sometimes, I think, to shake off this, the notion of the zero sum game that's mm-hmm. been like ingrained in us. Like even now, um, you know, trying to, trying to start a business. Can you pinpoint anything in your upbringing that like instilled that zero sum game concept into your head? Not something specific that I can think of at the top of my head, sort of on a tangentially related note, you know, the idea of kind of saving up money versus like earning money. Mm. But that's kind of, that's kind of a tangent. No, no. I think those are definitely, they, they cross over, right? Because if you Mm. have scarcity mindset with your finances, it can show up with, especially education, right? Because I think in like the Asian parent approved path, the point of education is so that you make more money. So in my head, at least they're the same thing. Like the only reason my parents expected me to go to college was so that I would make good money. Therefore, education is about money. Mm, mm, you put that so eloquently. Yeah, and that that helps me to see the connection better between those two things too, where, yeah, the, the scarcity mindset, which is totally related to the zero-sum game, is like, you know, my... N- no one in my family, I don't know anyone in my family or my friends' families who's ever tried to start their own business. Mm. You know, so like, so my parents have worked, you know, nine to fives their whole lives. So um, the the sort of little wealth they have comes from saving money. Right. Whereas I'm trying something totally different, you know, quitting my job full stop and investing into something, um, hoping it will it'll work, I guess, but being willing to take that risk and knowing that at the end of the day, I'm the best thing that I can invest in. Yes. Um, and so, (laughs) um, instead of, instead of saving away my money, I'm choosing to, to reinvest, um, and hoping that will yield fruit. I love it. And I want to highlight a few things there because you mentioned it as like, a wealth growing vehicle as opposed to working a nine to five and saving. So I want to highlight that for our listeners in terms of like business is one of like right next to, I would say real estate in terms of best ways in America to rapidly grow wealth. Mm. There are some like the tax law is designed to benefit business owners and landlords. So if you know what you're doing or know who to ask or just to ask the questions, there's a lot that you can do there to accelerate your wealth building through business as opposed to the traditional nine to five. Um, So that's one thing. And then the other one I wanted to highlight is that concept of like, because nobody else in your family has ever started a business. So 
I know what story I walked away with because I'm similar that in my head growing up, none of my relatives had started their own business before either. Um, but did you, can you like pinpoint a time that anybody in your family told you that like starting a business wasn't safe or it was a bad idea or that just wasn't done for whatever reason? Yeah, actually. Um, I guess my parents at a couple different points had tried to start maybe like a side hustle kind of thing, um, which both like only lasted for a short period of time and, and, you know, went South. Um, one was, um, my dad especially loved to garden and grow, um, vegetables in the backyard. So they were growing something at one point, it might've been an herb they were trying to sell on like eBay or Amazon. But I think they did it for a short while and then found out that they were actually losing money mm. doing that. <laughs> yep. um, and I, I guess they hadn't like thought through the, um, the finances of it and yeah. stuff. That, that's very common, right? Because you, you, first of all, don't consider your labor to be worth anything usually. Right. So you don't count that part. And then especially if you're shipping something out, you're, you don't know how much that's going to be at the end of the day, depending on who you're shipping to, where you're shipping from, how heavy the thing is, yeah. all these factors, you don't even control them. That's right. Oh, that was the third thing I wanted to highlight because you mentioned investing in yourself being like the best investment. And I want to like highlight that some more because um, investing in like the stock market in real estate are all like about just letting the crowd mm. take, like again with like rising boats raise rising tides, raise all boats. Yeah. Um, but like investing in yourself, when you have knowledge, when you have experience, when you've built a network, nobody can take those away from you and you have the most control over it because you get to decide what you do with that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, I think there was one other thought I was like trying to hold on to. Ah, the the family like experience with business. Um, just real quick, the other thing my parents tried at one point was like, uh, it was like an herbal supplements company that you know did the kind of suburban door to door sales. It seemed, which ended up being like one of those Ponzi scheme kind Ooh. of things where they were kind of brought in by like a friend, you know, like a neighbor. Right. And then they were given like some amount of like products to sell. Um, but yeah, I, I think that didn't really go well either. So I think they, they lacked like knowledge and like cultural capital mm. um, and maybe social capital and a little um, in, in some sense as well to be able to pull off, um, you know, having their own business um, and, and sort of as like a 1.5 generation um, person, you know, learning from them and having grown up here, um, my family moved here when I was eight. I feel like I, I definitely don't know everything, but I can, I know I can figure it out, you know, and I, I think I'm starting off with more knowledge and cultural capital, um, than, than they have. Um, and I feel very fortunate of course, and, and grateful to them and to, um, lots of, lots of other people and things yeah. to be able to have that. Yeah. I think there's a lot there in terms of like when you are the children of immigrants or like, as you mentioned, an immigrant yourself, like there's a lot of recognizing what got you here or like how you've been supported. Um, I do want to 
uh, explain for the audience, like when you say 1.5 generation, what do you mean by that? Oh, sure. Oh, gosh. Um, I think I came across this term in college at some point um, where, you know, first generation is kind of like, you know, parents like as adults immigrating to another country. Um, Maybe they didn't have kids at that point, but they themselves were adults when they immigrated. And second generation being like born in that country. Um, And so I I identified with, you know, 1.5 because I was still a child when I came, but I also wasn't born here. Um, so I was eight. I, I, I was born in China. My parents left the country when I was one. Um, we lived in Europe for a little bit. Uh, my dad was working at universities there and then came to the U.S. when I was eight. Do you remember any of that time in Europe? Yeah. Um, so we were in the Netherlands for maybe one and a half years and Germany for five years. And, um, definitely remember some things learning German which I've totally forgotten by now but I think back then that was like my favorite class <laughs> and I, I like like logical structures you know which the German language is and the English is not <laughs> <laughs> no definitely not um yeah I think I was kind of like good at it I I like skipped a grade at one point in elementary school I remember because when I came to the U.S. I had to like repeat that grade because of like age and Mm. you know, learning English still. So yeah, so I went through like ESL when I was a kid for a few years. But at the same time, like I was, you know, even even as a kid, like I was helping my parents with like translating documents or, you know, interpreting that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's a familiar story for me too. <laughs> <laughs> I was born here, but still a lot of translating things. <laughs> mm, mm. Yeah. As a first-generation Asian-American, I grew up trying to fit into the boxes other people put me in. I considered acting, voice acting, and writing as career options when I was little, but ended up joining corporate America as an IT project manager to take the Asian parent-approved path. The good news is, it's not too late for me to follow those more creative goals, but I didn't have the energy to work both my corporate job and follow those passions. And I couldn't shake the cultural directive to be financially stable so that my parents wouldn't have to worry about me. It's so ingrained in me that it's difficult to focus on more creative pursuits or what might be considered passion projects without the financial backing to support myself. That's why I'm such a big fan of building systems and financial foundations that leverage my hashtag very Asian frugal money habits and the more expansive abundance mindset that I strive to embody every day. While sitting at my corporate job feeling like there must be more to life than this, I spent years learning and absorbing information about how to become financially independent, invest in real estate and stocks, and build a business. And now, I'm on track to retire by 40. But more than that, I have the freedom to dress how I want, because how I dress now is certainly not considered professional, adopt unconventional pronouns, and work fewer hours to support my physical and mental health. I get to choose what clients I work with, who I spend time with, and what boundaries I need to set in order to keep the toxic expectations and hustle culture at bay. And I want that for you too. If you're ready to make your next big money move and build the financial foundations you need to feel like you can show up as your full self, I have an offer for you. My generational wealth building money mentorship program is three months of direct access to me 
and my brain to cut through all of the noise and conflicting information on the internet and get you where you need to be financially. Get a wealth building strategy, action plan, curated resources, and emotional support to put you on the path towards your abundant life. The link is in the show notes. All right. Well, with your your tea business, since you quit your job in January, like what do like if your parents were to run into somebody at a grocery store, what would they say you're doing now? Oh, <laughs> um, I would like to imagine that they're saying something like, "I'm I decided to be an entrepreneur and start my own business," um, and you know. I don't know, maybe, maybe they're like low key about it and just say like, Oh, she's, you know, she's doing something with tea. She's doing like tea events. I think generally it's like once they, once they come around to like, accept that I'm like doing something, they, they tend to be like supportive once I, I'm actually doing it. It's the, the part like leading up to the transition. That's like the hardest, you know, I remember my dad telling me that like, no matter what, I think I, at one point I just like, you know, I casually, you know, very casually like mentioned to him that I was thinking about the possibility of like quitting my job. And <laughs> he was like, no matter what, you're not quitting your job. You know, that was, he like, he's never quit a job before. Mm. You know, he's also like never asked for a raise. Um, <laughs> so it's funny that it seems to go hand in hand. Mm, mm. I never thought about it that way, but now that you mentioned it, I, I could see that. Yeah, I find that yeah, that's interesting that you know that though, because I was thinking about it just now. I don't know if my dad's ever asked for a raise. Mm. I know my mom has. My dad is not. So between your your two parents, like who do you feel like is like the most supportive or the least strict? Uh, equal, actually, yeah, about equal. My mom, she's been she's been like visiting me more recently, um, and just like trying to help out a little bit and stuff. But I would say, like, at heart, you know, they're equally supportive. Um, I don't know if my mom has ever quit a job or asked for a raise either. Because I think, I don't know, I just they just came from, like, a different time and place where stability, I think mm-hmm. stability, security was, like, the most important thing. Yeah. I, I mostly attribute it to a generation, right, where there was a, mm-hmm. an expectation of loyalty that went in both directions. But I also do add the like immigrant thought to it of like maybe the like the ESL aspect makes you a little bit more inferior so you're like don't <laughs> it's like the leave let sleeping mm. dogs lie kind of thing of like don't poke it like it's working fine yeah and it becomes becomes harder and harder to do um i think as they get older too because i've talked to my mom you know about her current job which i know she's not totally happy with um and it's been like that for several years but she's also almost 60 now and it's just like getting Mm. close to retirement age there's that aspect as well have they ever talked to you about how they expect you to support them in retirement no and i kind of you know i'm 30 now so i i've started to think about these things Mm -hmm. um you know they're they're like 60 and it's weird like i have a younger sister who's uh, you know she's in her like mid mid 20s like living her best life in korea right now um and 
you know, but I'm, I'm here and like trying to start my own business and like thinking like, oh, you know, if I have enough money to buy a house one day, like, is it, should I, should I like move one of them like in with me or something? They're, they're divorced. Oh, okay. okay. I was going to be like, why only one of them? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, so then like, what about the other one and, and that kind of thing? Yeah. I'm getting to that age where I'm like starting to think through these things and also how the business might, you know, is that going to be enough income for me and like supporting like my parents in the future Mm. possibly? I mean, that's, that's more of a distant thought right now, but it's starting to like creep in. Okay. Would you ever envision having them help at the tea house? Um, if they want to, I guess. Yeah, I, I guess there would, it would just be like the whole thing of like, oh, then do they move move here? You know, do we live together like mm. in the same house? And you know, is that is it all part of like one package deal or something? <laughs> <laughs> I think it depends on like their expectations, right? Like, yeah, because yeah. they they live far far enough away, like about um, two and a half three hours, that it, it wouldn't be like a commutable thing for them. Oh, okay, I see. So yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Is that is that part of something you think about at all, like with your family? Um, I don't have plans to do like brick and mortar business myself. Like everything I do is online. Um, but I just have like memories. My parents have rental property and I have memories um growing up. Like we would go to the rental property between tenants and they would like do a lot of manual labor to clean it up for the next tenants and then be there like taking applications for people who wanted to rent there and like check the place out, like basically have an open house. I just remember having weekends like that. And like, I kind of like transmute that to like, if I had a physical business, there might be something similar where like you mentioned your parents are farther away, but that might be something that like, I immediately imagined that like, maybe they would come in for a weekend while you're setting up the the storefront or something. And not necessarily like help in the store, but like maybe they would cook like something like that. Yeah. Oh no. I, t- to, to give my mom credit, uh, she's, she's already doing that. Like I had a, a big weekend event, um, two weekends ago and, um, she was actually inviting me and my husband to go visit her. She recently bought a new condo. Um, and I said, I couldn't cause I had this event. So then she offered to come here instead and help me, you know, and <laughs> was, oh, that's awesome. was like cooking. Yeah, no, she did all of that. Like everything you just said, um, what, you know, she drove her car to like shuttle like us and all our stuff to the place. And then like, was like cooking. It was really hot that weekend too. Um, so yeah, in terms of like supportiveness, I I, I really have to like give them credit. Like yeah. gold star. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. So I, I do want to circle back actually, because you mentioned like doing the, the virtual um, tea tastings with corporations. Like if somebody were interested in doing that with you, like what would they need to consider? Like what's a good group size? Like what, what scenario would be ideal for hosting something like that? Um, so because it's virtual, the, the group size is a lot more flexible. Um, it could just be a few people. It could be a couple hundred. Um, you know, uh, yeah, as, as long as everyone's not jumping in to talk at once or something. But, I mean, it's mainly me setting it up with the shipping, just having um, enough time to package everything and ship so people can get ahead of the event um, we have time to resolve any issues that might have come up with 
people not getting packages. Yeah, those are the main logistical considerations. No, I think that's a great point about shipping. So how much lead time do you typically ask for so that you do have the the opportunity to make sure that everybody got their package? Um, I would say finalizing like the, the T's um, and, you know, locking in that this, this is an event that is going to happen like a month before, okay. um, if we're shipping within the U S and to certain, um, international destinations that are within like a two week shipping zone. Mm, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. But within the U S like maximum should take seven business days to any, any given place, um, outside the U S like up to 10, 12 business days. So awesome. How did you get into like doing the, the corporate virtual events? Like, was that something you saw somebody else was doing and you decided to do it or like, do you come up with this? I used to work at a tea company before I started my own thing. Okay. So yeah. I, you know, learned a lot from, from that time. I wasn't too involved with the, um, tea tasting events until the very end where I was kind of invited to co-host a couple they were about they were um around the time of lunar new year and i think i was kind of brought in as like you know an asian person to talk about it um i, I thought about it was the other person not asian the other person was white and these two organizations had specifically kind of requested a lunar new year theme for their staff and then was the tea in this instance asian tea yes okay uh-huh yeah it was um yeah, so you know, I, I I thought about it and I decided to do it. And it was a lot of fun. I got to learn about how to set it up behind the scenes. Just like, oh, I I want to try doing that too. There's um there's pros and cons I think to um, virtual and in person events. At heart, I'm all about the in person. Um, you know, having everyone sit down together around the same table for tea is like what I want to be doing. Um. But with virtual, it's uh, you can taste through more teas with people, um, and it's you know there's not a limit to how many people can gather at one time. Mm. Um, the last in-person event I did, it was like a walk-in thing. At one point, we had like twenty people there, and it was it was kind of too much. You know, you couldn't do it properly and hold space mm. for everyone together. Um, Whereas, you know, a virtual thing, it's, uh, you can do many, many people and it'll still be nice. That's awesome. Right. Like, and it's good to like, know when you hit a cap sometimes, especially earlier in your, your business journey that like, you know what that looks like. Mm. Cause it also sounds like, like, do you envision yourself training somebody else to also host these events so that you could do like bigger groups, but have like people like breakout room style? Oh, interesting. Uh, you mean for the in-person, like having. Yeah. For in-person. I would love to. I would love to at some point. I think right now I'm at a point where, uh, you know, figuring out which which parts of the business I've enjoyed doing the most that also seems sustainable um, financially and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's like I have to lock those in. And once I have like that structure figured out, then I'll be more comfortable like bringing more people on board yeah. and having like um, employees or apprentices or something and being like, oh, this is what we're doing. So it's um, there's more structure and I think that'll just be better for them and me. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Okay, um, we are coming to time, but I want to make sure I ask questions that I'm sure audience would have. Mm. So if you're comfortable sharing, um, when you decided to quit your job, 
Did you like know where your money was going to come from? Did you have savings saved up? Like what did your financial situation look like? Mm, um, so when I quit my job, I had been thinking about this tea house for a few years and had um, savings for that. Um, but I will say that I, I'm not like the most like personal finance savvy person. Um, I, um, so I I don't know how other people would have done it. Maybe you can actually give me some advice, but I just kind of had like all my savings in one big pile. And I was like, Oh, if I want to buy a house one day, I'll use that. I'll, you know, if I want to buy a car, like I'll have like that pool of, it became like the same bucket you might pull from. Yeah. Which is probably not the smartest. But has it worked out so far? It's been okay so far. Um, cause I'm also taking like small steps and like low financial risk. Um, mm-hmm. just like growing bigger slowly. Um, so it's okay so far. Um, I also am very lucky to have a husband who's a software engineer. So he is now. <laughs> <laughs> is, um, what I put as a, an Asian parent approved career path. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, there's, there's a whole story behind this though, where, um, you know, when, when we first started dating, we were both backpackers and then I went to grad school and he was still fun employed. So he, he was fun employed for like three years, like the first three years that we were dating. So he was like, not like parent approved (laughs) for a long time, but you know, eventually, uh, eventually he was like, okay, yeah, I'll like get back to, into, you know job market and all that. So during grad school, actually, there was a time when I, uh, he was visiting, um, me and I was supporting the both of us kind of, cause I was in grad school, but I had like a couple part-time jobs. Mm. Um, and you know, like nobody really had much money back then and it didn't really, I don't know. It was, it was fine. So, um, I was kind of like supporting us for a while um, and now he gets to return the favor. So, <laughs> yay! Okay, well, um, what does supporting you look like right now from his direction? Is it mostly financially? Do you feel like he, like, is he your partner that can like brainstorm the business with you, or do you keep that mostly separate? So he will like come do events with me if I need help. Um, he's paying our rent, buying our groceries. Um, and if I'm just like trying to talk through something with someone who'll like always listen to me and like give me feedback. So I, I, I couldn't really ask for more. I think I have kind of like broached the subject of like a formal business partnership, mm. um, a couple of times to him, but honestly at this point it's like, I don't, I don't think we need to like go to that level of formality. I think he's already just like supporting me as much as he possibly can while like holding down his own, you know, full-time job to pay the bills. Gotcha. And your, your LLC is like entirely in your name. That's right. Well, if you're legally married, like there's already like some kind of connection there. Like I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know for sure what that looks like, but there's usually like he would inherit your stake in the business, even if you were to like eventually have a partner anyway. So they're oh. like, like that's my entry level understanding of how that works with marriage. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. I don't know that. Um, I think we might have. So we got married in Brazil, where he's from. I think we might have signed a prenup, but it was like in Portuguese, so I like. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> a copy of that translated for you. <laughs> I think that's what we decided on. Yeah, maybe at some point I'll like look into that. But yeah, when, when you're starting out, right? There, there's not much. Like if there's 
not too much value, like asset wise in the business than like early stages, having the LLC is great. And then as your risk gets bigger, right? Like as the business makes more money, then it's definitely worth looking into. Right. Sounds like the smart thing to do. (laughs) But I like because you mentioned previously about like taking it bit by bit, right? Like you're, you didn't Mm. walk into this and expecting it to be like, a, a overnight success and you didn't dump all your money into investments from the get-go, you sound very intentional about what you're picking to invest in as you grow your business. Right. Where, um, you know, there's like some, a little bit of like retail sales that I'm thinking about how to expand that, or if I want to focus on that, or if I want to invest more into like wholesale and build up something that can like, uh, be, you know, constant, um, and financially stable before getting into retail, which the climate around that is like in decline a little bit right now. Um, and yeah, not, not rushing to jump into like the brick and mortar, even though that's like what I really want ultimately, but just thinking through the steps carefully. Does any of like the Asian hate stuff going on, like factor into how you feel about your business? Yes, in terms of the larger political climate, I I have a lot of feelings and thoughts about that, for sure. Um, in terms of, you know, coronavirus, but also, you know, since way before that, the propaganda of, you know, anything from China must be cheap and generic and not valuable. Um and I grew up with that narrative about Chinese stuff, mm-hmm. like, you know, my whole life. And I think getting into high-end teas um, and sharing that with people. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's fighting that, you know, and being like, hey, you guys are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and look at this, like, awesome tea, you know, have a taste of it. Um, so fighting that and also at the same time being like cognizant of the geopolitical stuff between like these two empires fighting for like global domination, you know, the US versus China and how mm-hmm. everyone's I'm I'm feeling like everyone's being forced to like take sides. You're like either with one or against them. Right, there's like a caught in the middle feeling. Yeah. Yep. Um definitely feeling that. Um, and at the same time too, like, uh, figuring out how Taiwan and Taiwanese teas are playing into this whole thing Mm. because I, I personally have, um, a huge love of Taiwanese culture and Taiwanese teas. And, you know, I'm very proud to source some of the best teas ever, I think from Taiwan. Do your, does your family identify as Chinese or do they identify as Taiwanese? Chinese. Uh, my family is from um, the mainland in the north. Okay. Yeah. But I, um, I guess I spent some some time in Taiwan, and uh, I, you know, I feel close to the culture in some ways. So yeah, not knowing how things are gonna go there politically and what that might mean for my business, and just I guess holding all of that for now. There's nothing really to be done about it. Yeah, it's a lot. But yeah, um, you know, not forgetting that stuff like the Japanese internment camps happened mm-hmm. during World War II and 
feeling like, oh, if things come to a head, will history like maybe repeat itself? And yeah. feeling like that that might be a possibility like in our lifetime, you know, yeah. and um wanting to prevent that, you know, to fight it, to like take a stand as like um Chinese Americans here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That mm-hmm. it's scary stuff that like knowing how history works and how we tend to repeat history. Um, but I do see that like your work with these tea parties and sharing the culture and history and having your tea house is sharing the value of our culture and bringing it like to the forefront for your customers, especially once you get a storefront and people get to walk by and see how cool it is. Like, <laughs> I am so excited for that. So I'm so glad that you are doing this and that you the that you like I know that we don't have like immediate answers for the rest of the political landscape but I do think that what you're doing is going to help Mm. thank you I I really appreciate the the support and faith and you know feeling like I'm I'm not like alone you know there's like a community um with me So thank you. Well, thank you for sharing all of this with us. Um, If anybody is interested in working with Yin, all of her um, social media handles will be in the show notes. And um, if anything resonated with you, please share it on social media or on um, Apple Podcasts. Awesome. Thank you so much, TJ. I know that something in this episode left you feeling, oh my God, that's so me. And I want to hear about it leave a review on iTunes or tag me on social media and share your relatable story with us so that we can normalize our experiences as Asian Americans and help more people feel safe to step outside of the box. I can't wait to hear about it. You can find me on Instagram at tj.wey and don't forget to design your abundant life.